This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing three spells. With the careful gaze of the Gregori, we discuss demons in the setting of the invisible sun. And then with a distant light pierces the mist, we consider how Guillermo del Toro's Kronos can serve as inspiration for your campaign. Finally, we will present the third part of our story of Itono, uh, the develop mode demonstration, uh, at the end of the podcast as a bonus for you. Join us on the Path of Suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. This time, we're going to talk a little bit about demons and how they might come into play in an Invisible Sun campaign. So, uh, here we are. It's, uh, you know, a good year after, you know, the beginning of our podcast, and we're rolling up onto Halloween. So, what better way to celebrate one of my favorite holidays than to talk about demons and uh, creepy vampires? Uh, how, how do you like to ring in Halloween, Scott? Uh, that sounds like a pretty good uh, uh, way to go. I usually warm up for the entire month celebrating with Turner Classic Movies uh, series of presentations. Uh, I think this year it is like every Tuesday night uh, is a theme night and every Saturday is a vampire themed night. Uh, so there's tons of classic horror on Turner Classic Movies. So I usually save movies and watch them all year round to catch up. Ooh, that sounds cool. Uh, is that just during October that Turner Classic Movies does that, or is that a year-round thing? They have, uh, it's mostly in October. Mm -hmm. They will sometimes have special events throughout the year. Uh, most commonly you will find on their, I believe it is Saturday nights late, they have uh, something called TCM Underground, which will have independent and art, you know, sometimes art house and sometimes exploitation films. Okay. Uh, and you'll ca catch some classic horror in there sometimes. Also on Sunday nights, they do foreign and uh, silent films. And so horror and international international horror films will show up on Sunday nights sometimes. But the greatest concentration is during October. Okay, cool. So um, Dario Argento stuff would show up on Sundays for the foreign films? Yes, I've seen it. I've seen, I believe, some Argento on there. Uh, and Mario Bava and some other Italian uh, directors I've seen pop up on the Sunday night, uh, or not sorry, Sunday night, the, the Saturday night uh, underground, uh, and sometimes on Sunday night. But I think Sunday they try to make them older and mm -hmm. either silent era or early sound era. So on Sunday night, you're more likely to see things like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, Faust. Uh, or even, uh, they, I think, in fact, this weekend or last, no, it's last weekend, uh, they had some Japanese silent era horror films. Oh, that would be interesting. Uh, so where, do, where does Hammer Films fall into that uh, schedule? It, they do it differently in different years. So I believe this year they have each Tuesday night is a different decade. Mm -hmm. So uh, we record on Tuesday nights uh, and tonight's 
decade is, I think, the 50s. And it's all Val Luton all the time tonight until like four in the morning. So I'll be doing some of that when I get home. Cool. And by the end, they go through decades. And so they often have a 70s and 80s decade, which is a night of a bunch of of Hammer films from the Dracula to the Frankenstein to the Mummy. uh, And sometimes they're non-monster Hammer horror films. Yeah, I'm only really familiar with uh, some of the Christopher Lee Lee stuff. So, but, uh, you know, it's. I think this little discussion we're having here might be uh, better served in our second segment because, hey, we're talking about demons. So uh, why don't we uh, follow down in Faust's footsteps, as we had just uh, brought up, and talk about some demons in the actuality and how they are going to show up. Um, So I'm a big fan of demons in my role-playing games i i really like them i like demons and devils a whole ton um especially i guess in other settings i'm a big fan of devils because you know they're the ones that like signing contracts and setting up you know long-term plans and you know they have machinations that they're they're putting together um whereas demons tend to be you know crazier and more unpredictable uh, and you know, kind of spur of the moment. And I think we got, we have kind of a mix in invisible sun with how these demons are going to be showing up. So broad overview, we've talked about demons before, uh, when we talked about the red sun. Uh, but, uh, if you hadn't, you know, listened to that or you have forgotten, which, Hey, it was a long time ago. Uh, demons lack this thing called qualia, and qualia is um, basically your soul. So that is also the thing that powers magic in this game. So you need qualia in order to use magic. Uh, Vizlay have qualia. Demons do not. Demons want to get a hold of qualia in order to perform their magic, um, which is why... Demons are so keen on uh, putting together agreements with Goetics, for example, to, you know, perform services in exchange for the potential to, you know, take advantage of a Goetic and somehow get some qualia out of that bargain. When I was looking through all of the material that we've got out there um, on the Kickstarter and whatnot, there there seemed to be three major types of demons that we're going to see in Invisible Sun. And they come from different areas under the suns themselves, and also one that is not under the suns. Uh, But we'll get to that in a second. So we have the demons from the red sun, which, you know, these seem like the very typical demons that I was just talking about. Um, They're the, you know, crazy destructive demons that Goetics are probably going to try and bargain with in order to do nasty, sinister stuff. Um, so this, this we've, we've touched on before. Um, these demons are pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, do, do you think that's accurate, Scott? Like, are these the traditional demons that we would have seen in another, another game or in literature? Um, I think that is true. There might be a, a good baseline case for demons, but to some extent, all three of these are types of creatures we've seen in other games, and the distinctions between them uh, are probably less remarkable than the similarities to be shared between them. 
So we shouldn't get caught up too much on the distinctions of demons and where they're from. Mm -hmm. uh, in that we can tell a lot, many of the same stories with demons from the different places, uh, but we can think about this important but small differences between them. But the, the, the red sun demons are sort of the starting point that we usually think of uh, for, for demons. Yeah, and these would be the demons that I think you'd want to start with them when you're trying to get somebody to work with you um, as a goetic. Because uh, once, uh, once we start talking about the demons of the night side of the red sun, um, my sense is that those demons were much more extreme, much more exaggerated versions of the demons that you're going to find under the red sun. So we haven't talked about the, red, the night side of the suns. At some point we may visit that. Uh, but sort of lump a whole bunch of them together. Uh, but what we know about the night side of the Red Sun is uh, they're warden, and wardens seem to be a pretty good exemplar of what you know a certain sun is going to be like. Uh, the warden is Balragon, who's a warrior demon of strength, spikes, and hammers. And basically you would have to be mad in order to try and uh, work out a deal with him uh, because he is basically destruction taken to an extreme which seems to be the you know the best way to describe the demons of the night side here um yes. so the the small distinctions that you wanted to focus in on uh what are, what are you seeing here between these uh red demons so I think of these more as points on a continuum rather than being entirely different types of, of creatures mm -hmm. then red demons are still characterized by destruction and power and uh, those sorts of themes. Yes. But the uh, red demons from the, the day side uh, are probably ones you could hypothetically uh, bargain with, you can talk to and communicate with. Uh, and the, the night side demons might be so far along the continuum of destruction that they're just beyond uh, conversation. So yes, I think you're right that the, the day side demons are more likely to be parties to goetic summonings and bargains, uh, and thus may be more likely to be involved in invisible sun stories. R night side demons are more likely to be just pure antagonists because you can't really interact with them very much uh, or are, are unlikely to do so because they're much more likely to punch you in the face than to hesitate long enough to find out why they shouldn't. Um, yeah, I was just trying to think of uh, a good example of what the difference between these two might be. And I was just running through the different like groups of uh, people in the last Mad Max movie. Because um, it seems like, hey, you've got these, you know, crazy, you know, uh, the war boys who were kind of insane and just wanted to destroy things. Uh, and then you have, you know, later on, you've got those guys that are hanging from the um man those those massive poles on the backs of the trucks and you know they also want to destroy things but they're going about it in a completely you know over the top insane way in comparison to the war boys um so it might be it might be something like that you know they they both kind of want to you know have a good time it's just the way they go about it is a, a little bit different and there's some correspondence, a rough correspondence, to uh, the classic distinction between devils and demons in Dungeons and Dragons, where devils, you know, may uh, negotiate and sign deals, and they're they're lawful to the extent that they do follow a, a social order, uh, and they try to be kind of sneaky in pursuing their goals, which are 
clearly evil goals, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to devils, which are just crazy, violent, chaotic entities. You mean demons. It doesn't match up exactly, but that might be a, a way to begin conceptualizing the difference between dayside and nightside demons for the red sun. Under the dayside, the demons are entities you can uh, negotiate with, but you should be very careful in doing so. Uh, because if angered, they're likely to still be able to cut a swath of destruction uh, through your house and neighborhood. But the nightside demons likely will never even give you the chance to negotiate. They are just a personification of violence uh, and destruction. Yeah. So if we continue along that spectrum, uh, we get to another interesting point uh, of, you know, a, a third group of demons that come from a different place. Uh, this time, the dark. And I don't believe we've talked about the dark at all on this show. We've probably mentioned it here and there, but we've never really dug into it and, and really talked about what the dark is. There isn't a whole lot of information, um, but the dark is basically the absence of light. And hey, we're talking about a world where you have nine different suns with light and dark aspects to them. And here's this place that has no light at all. So in the absence of light, um, we have all sorts of interesting creatures and monsters. And one of those, one of the things that lives in the dark would be demons, more demons. Um, and this is going further on that spectrum where the nightside demons were uh, crazy and probably not interested in talking. Uh, and we take that a little bit further and the demons from the dark um, are also interested in destruction, but not just destruction of things and places and people they're they're interested in destruction of concepts and ideas is kind of what i was reading because the demons that live in the dark are defined by what they oppose not what they stand for so uh the examples of the names that we got from there would be the enemy of sleep or the enemy of rationality so you have these demons that want to just tear down these concepts that you know we are accustomed to and very comfortable with. So these creatures are uh, looking for destruction in a whole different way. And they are sinister and vile, and they are full of hate and contempt. Um, So the nightside demons, I can see them as being a, a, you know, a crazy wild card monster that you might throw in at some point. Uh, But these demons in the dark, I, I would see them as more of a you know, major antagonist that might show up and, uh, you know, mess with the plans that the party has or certain people in the party have simply because they represent the thing that that demon is opposed to. Um, How does that sound on this spectrum of demons? Yeah, it's really hard to tell without more information. Uh, but I think you're right. Another way to look at it is that the, the red demons of the night side and the day side are still residents of a sun. Mm-hmm. They're still part of the system of the path of suns, whereas the demons of the dark are outside the path of suns. And I see them as representing a corruption or uh, an infection of the path of suns itself. So they are in some ways more of a Lovecraftian outsider evil rather than a kind of inside uh, evil represented by the the uh, demons of the, of the Red Sun. Uh, they are undermining the entire system. 
Yeah, I think uh, we should probably come back and talk about the dark at some point. Uh, it's it's a pretty interesting place that I'd like to touch on. But, um, I mean, those are the, the big demons that we're going to be seeing in Invisible Sun. Uh, and hey, yeah, follow that spectrum and see where it leads you. And I guess we'll have to move on and talk about the dark at some other time. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss a source of inspiration for your Invisible Sun game. As Halloween approaches, it is the perfect time to discuss another horror film. In this case, we discuss Guillermo del Toro's 1993 film, Kronos. As usual, spoilers will abound for this almost 25-year-old movie. If you want to be surprised, you should watch it before listening to our discussion. So let me provide a very brief plot synopsis of the movie. Uh, and then we can talk about how we can draw elements from this movie into our games. So, Kronos uh, centers around an antique dealer named Jesus Gris, who discovers a small golden bug-like device hidden in a broken statue. The device makes him feel younger, but gives him certain compulsions. These are uh, immediately recognizable as the compulsions of a vampire uh, to consume blood. Furthermore, there's an eccentric manufacturing magnate who's looking for the same de device and sends his bruiser nephew, Angel, to find this device at any price. So Jesus Greece finds himself caught between the addictive qualities of this, uh, this gold bug device uh, and uh, the pursuit of the uh, bruiser uh, agent of a manufacturer who's trying to find this device because he thinks it might extend his rapidly approaching uh, 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 death. So from this, I think there's a lot of things we can draw, but a, a good starting point is that uh, this movie represents a different type of vampire than we see in a lot of other fiction. We have an alchemical vampire rather than one that's inspired by religion or other things, though certainly there's religious motifs in, in the movie. But alchemy is at the center of all of this, and since it's central to a lot of uh, Invisible Sun, it seems like a, this is a, a way to look at how alchemy can be portrayed in its more sinister aspect uh, within our Invisible Sun campaigns. Yeah, so the device was created by... Um, an alchemist back in like the 1400s or something. Is that what it was? Uh, something along those lines. Yeah, it was, uh, let's see, uh, the, uh, the 16th century. Okay. Yeah. So when that, that shows up in the intro and I said, Ooh, okay, we're going to be talking about alchemists, aren't we? And their secrets. And, and here we are talking about alchemists and their secrets. Yeah. Uh, and so th this there's even some uh, uh, some shots within the device itself where you get to see the inner workings of this cogwork alchemical device uh, that is built around a mysterious insect that that is that it serves as this agent to transform whoever is uh, using the device uh, into something like a vampire. Uh, so yeah, you have this alchemical creation with steampunk elements that becomes the uh, vector for vampirism. Again, very different than we usually think of getting bitten by a vampire or you know, or these other ways we talk about people being turned into vampires. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, when when we were getting those shots of the interior of the artifact, I thought it would be interesting to pull that idea and say, hey, maybe the magical power of whatever artifact you've come across, it's not just an enchantment or something. I mean, what if there is something that's been imprisoned within it and that's where that magic is being drawn from? It's not really a surreal idea, but it was a, an interesting idea that I thought would be fun to lift. Yeah, and it allows you to connect some uh, creatures and threats that aren't usually connected. So we don't think of vampires and alchemy necessarily connected most often, but in this case we can see how one could make that sort of connection. And you could do something similar with lycanthropy, and make an, you could have a story about an alchemical werewolf. Um, though I, I guess Jekyll and Hyde isn't far off from that to begin with. Yeah, I suppose that um, would be. But you, you can uh, tie these in. Uh, there's some other uh, points at which alchemy becomes important in the story. Uh, some things I had not noticed until I listened to the director's uh, commentary. Uh, uh, Jesus' family at the very beginning has is uh, opening of the movie, at least the opening of, of uh, when they introduce Jesus' character is at dinner. And uh, Guillermo del Toro is fascinated by color. Some have said that his movies can also be enjoyed, if not best enjoyed, by turning off the dialogue entirely and just watching the scenes. Mm -hmm. In the, the first scene with Jesus, he's having breakfast with his family, which consists of his wife and a much younger adopt, adopted daughter or granddaughter. Yeah, I thought it was his relationships, Yeah, it's, it's, the relationship's not, it's not super clear or, or important in that matter in the movie. Yep. <laughs> but Del Toro wanted to emphasize in the commentary track that... He built in the fundamental colors of alchemy into the family because Jesus has white hair, uh, his wife has uh, gray, or sorry, uh, red hair, and the granddaughter has black hair. And so, white, black, and red are very important colors to the mythology of alchemy and the creation of a of a philosopher's stone. And so, he wanted to build those colors into the family itself, and he did it through their hair color. Uh, Philosopher's Stone is a uh, key to immortality, right? It is a term that can be used in a couple different ways. It's, it is whatever alchemists are pursuing. And there's really okay. two different tracks in alchemy. And, and the, but these kind of cross over, uh, especially in the last couple centuries of alchemical mythology and lore. Traditionally, alchemists in, from the West are thought to be pursuing a Philosopher's Stone to transform base metals like lead into gold. Mm -hmm. And so that seemed to be very lucrative. Uh, and Eastern uh, alchemy, especially coming out of mainland China, uh, was focused on a something called a philosopher's stone, usually by outsiders characterizing it, um, as a, a, a process by which someone could achieve immortality. Okay. Now, in the last... Two or three hundred years, those traditions have more or less become interchangeable, uh, and some are now saying that oh, it was, is actually this, the secret intent of alchemists in the Western tradition all along uh, to find immortality, and that the whole gold creation was a cover story they used hmm. to get funding, uh, or that it was a metaphor that the purification of lead into gold was seen as a metaphor of the purification of fallen human uh, flesh into a pure immortal spirit. Okay. So it's really hard to figure out. You know, there, I don't know if there is a truth to the matter of what is of what these are referring to, but mixed up into the lore of alchemy is a reference to a device 
to you know, to ensure immortality. Though in this case, it's one that ensures an immortality of vampirism rather than what we think of as a kind of immortality as a, a kind of elixir of, of, of life. Um, it's interesting that the, the colors for the Philosopher's Stone were encoded into the, the family's hair. Because one thing I noted is um, the... You know the antagonist in the movie. Uh, what's what's his name? The Bruiser is on Hell, and his the uncle. Magnet's name is is like Dieter. Dieter. Yeah. Um, one thing I noted when I was watching um, when you go into Dieter's place, yeah, uh, the only colors that really stand out in there are black and white. Which you know, if following along that logic, hey, it's he's missing one of the pieces for that Philosopher's Stone. So he's never. I had not that. noticed that. Yeah, yeah. That's really good. Yeah, and I really hadn't thought about it too much other than like, oh, you know, the Guillermo del Toro really likes doing stuff with color. And it's interesting that this one place is pretty much black and white. Um, but I never really thought too much about it until you mentioned that um, the encoding of the alchemical colors is in the family and it is absent uh, from the guy's room who is actively seeking this Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, it's worth worth mentioning that this place we're referring to, Dieter, the magnet who wants the uh, the, the gold device to extend his own life, um, is, I think, clearly inspired by uh, Howard Hughes, who oh, in his later life sort of withdrew into a hermetic uh, sealed environment where he became paranoid about disease and uh, so everything's super clean and people have to come in with masks and he, he and, and you have that's inspired Dieter's residence, even though it seems to be underneath um, a nasty decommissioned manufacturing plant mm-hmm. of some kind. So you have this monochrome, but you know, filthy sort of run down industrial location. Then you go through it to D, uh, to Dieter's little domicile. Uh, that is supposed to is, is you know uh, psycho you know, is maniacally clean, uh, and you know he's using he's fighting off this disease uh, or whatever this disease is uh, in this uh, sealed environment. But the environment itself is surrounded by this grimy industrial area, which is a fascinating contrast. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting about his place is that he had jars of his like excised body parts. Um, set up on display uh, which I thought was it, very similar to uh, the display of butterflies from that comic book we read so long ago what was the name of that comic book a doom patrol and the butterfly collector yes. uh, it reminded me a lot of that that uh, he's got all these you know dead butterflies on display but this guy's got you know his his body parts under jars and on display for the most part which I thought would be an interesting way to set up something like a lich and its phylacteries. It would be a fun little, fun little thing to do. Yeah, the uh, so this is referring to Crawling from the Wreckage, the first volume of Doom Patrol written by Grant Morrison, in which one of the antagonists is the Butterfly Collector. Uh, I think uh, Dieter at one point mentions that he's. I think he says, exaggeration, half of his body has been removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, probably not the case, and. It's there's this, this you're a really creepy display of all of these things. I, I imagined if you wanted to try and come up with some reasonable explanation for this, that he's basically fighting a cancer, that they're continually cutting out of him, 
So he has, he's fighting this disease that's growing inside of him and he's trying to cut it out and stay ahead of it, but he's, he knows he's losing that battle. But so you have these jars of these oddly shaped cancerous growths uh, that are fascinating and disgusting all at the same time. Yeah. Um, I do have to say though, that the most surreal thing about this movie was seeing Ron Perlman from 1993. Holy cows, man, he was young. And that was not his earliest work. I think that was after he was in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I believe so. And so he had been going, he's been around for a while. uh, And that you can see why he ended up as Hellboy and uh, still uh, works with Del Toro in lots of projects. Because this was was basically Del Toro's first movie. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, still an early movie for Ron Perlman. And so they've had this relationship for, for quite a while. Uh, one other element I think would be you know, there's many, many things we could talk about. But since we're on the topic of Dieter's little area, uh, one thing I found really effective was that uh, I mentioned that uh, Jesus found this little gold bug inside a broken statue. Well, it's a, it's a broken statue of, sort of, of, a, of an angel. So it's an, uh, about, say, two, two to three feet tall. Uh, but it's got like broken wings and broken arms. It's clear. It's uh, the part of its face is broken in, um, and he finds in the base of it, hidden away, a little section that has this gold bug device. Well, it turns out that Dieter had known about this device. Uh, in fact, he'd found the instruction manual for the device hidden in a very similar and broken angel statue. And since that time, he's been trying to find all of the broken angel statues. So they could find the one that included the gold du- gold bug device. That's kind of an interesting conceit for a story in an RPG. But what affected me most was the visual. Because when he found these angels, you can imagine he's, he's frustrated because the angel statues are mostly empty. His The hallway leading to his major room uh, has dozens and dozens of these statues hanging from the ceiling. So it's like a gallows walk of hanging angel statues, uh, which are just the discarded, empty statues that he's been frustrated not to, that, that they did not include uh, his his uh, gold bug device. But having Ron Perlman or anyone else wander through this hallway of hanging, like literally by their necks, um, angel statues draped in plastic and uh, clearly kind of discarded and, and in many ways punished was a fascinating visual choice. Yeah, it was a it was a really cool movie. Uh, I'm glad I went back and watched it again. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff in there to to pull from. Yeah, we could talk about it for a while, but this gives you some ideas of just a few examples of, of individual scenes and locations that we, we can draw inspiration from for our games. Uh, and it's just a darn good movie uh, and something I, we recommend checking out. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to find. It is streamable on Filmstruck. Uh, I believe if you're a, that's a, that's a membership service that has a lot of Criterion Collection films, and this is part of the Criterion Collection. Uh, uh, so I, you can stream it. I rented it through the Google Play Store. Yes, so you can also rent it from Amazon, Google, and Apple. Yep. But I know you can if you are a member of Filmstruck, you can stream it as just part of your package. Uh, you could also purchase it for streaming from Amazon or Apple. Cool. Maybe the Google Play Store as well. Uh, yeah. You uh, so you know for. I, well, was it two or three dollars or something like that? Uh, I rented the HD version for like four bucks. 
Okay. You, you splurge for the, the full $4 for the HD. Yeah. Uh, and it's also the Criterion cut for it. So whatever work Criterion did to, you know, update it, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that that came along with it. Yeah. So we recommend it. Uh, we, we try to find movies that you can stream through more mainstream services for free. Uh, but in this case, the movie was just so darn good. Uh, we wanted to talk about it, even if uh, we, you know, some people might uh, not want to pay the three dollars or four dollars to, to stream it. But we recommend it uh, if you get a chance. You might find it. At a, it's po- popular enough. You might find it at video stores if those things still exist. There is actually one over. Yeah, they, there is one over by my apartment in Norman. I know that they some of them do exist. I mean, you want to talk about a surreal location? Let's talk about video stores. Yeah, like stepping back into 1993. Okay, so we're going to be picking up um, our third session of our quick little actual play development mode thing that we're doing with our our hero, Itono. And if you recall, last time Itono had... Uh, gone off to investigate the chainbound building e- that was next to the was it a flea market or just yes, a large market something of like sorts? That. Um, and, and, and an outdoor market. Yes, the outdoor market, uh, and he sliced his way through the chains using his uh, well, the nightmare he had just extracted um, earlier that day, uh, and you know got himself into the building. And then he, ooh, what what happened? Did he hear anything? See anything? I don't think he did. But he no, he was because as soon under- as I began investigating the building, uh, I got bit by uh, a little piece of of the chain. I think I picked up. Ah, yes, that's that's what it was. Yes. So uh, I think what we're going to do here is. Uh, <sighs> Itono is is going to wake up like uh, you're not sure exactly how much time has passed, uh, but you are within the building that you had, uh, you know, infiltrated earlier and uh, taking a a quick glance around to get your bearings. You can see that uh, you are bound up in chains. Uh, Once again, chains similar to the house that you are currently in. Uh, and lurking in the shadows of the house, uh, because the, the light from outside is, is pretty bad thanks to the, the chains that have wrapped it up. Um, but lurking in the shadows, you can see, uh, a humanoid form and you can hear it clinking as it moves in the darkness in front of you. Um, so anything you want to do at this point? I am just carefully tracking where the noise is coming from so that it does not, you know, get, I basically try to turn Mm -hmm. and keep myself facing the noise so that I can do whatever I, at least see it (laughs) if it were to come, if it comes closer to me. Uh, So once, once you start moving, uh, the, the creature that's out in the shadows uh, steps forward so you can get a little bit of a better glimpse at it. And you see that uh, this creature is a demon and uh, it, it smiles at you, and its teeth glint because it has uh, shiny chrome teeth, uh, and its hair, which it tosses back over its shoulder, is just more chain link that it, you know, jingles and jangles as it uh, rolls over his shoulder. 
Uh, and the, the demon, you know, approaches and with its big grin, uh, speaks in a, in a low raspy voice that, you know, uh, sounds a little bit disturbing. And it says, so what are you doing here? I am not entirely sure. I was not here of my own uh, device. I was brought here and chained up. If you let me out of these chains, maybe we can uh, work together to find out why it is that I'm here. Well, you you came back in. And I'm just curious, what made you think you were welcome? I was investigating this house. This house has been near my temple for years. Uh, so uh, I knew I, I have seen it for a long time, and I was worried people were uh, in trouble inside. I, I was able to rescue some people, but I was worried there were more trapped inside, uh, deeper into the house. Mm. Well, isn't trespassing illegal here? It is not trespassing if you're seeking to rescue someone from a burning house, or in this case, a magically assaulted house. Magically assaulted? But are you saying you don't appreciate my my decor? Uh, the people in the house before seem to have very little appreciation for this decor. Mm. Uh, the people in this house before pff, does not matter. This... This is my house now. What what drew you to this house? Drew me to this house? I liked I liked the location. I like being able to look at the people out on the market and see them go about their daily business. Well, it is a very 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 fine house. But madness. <laughs> but uh, it the chains seem to be disturbing some people in the area. Is there, is there some way we can uh, allow you to uh, reside here, but without the distressing effects that you're creating on uh, the, the people in the market that you're, you're, you enjoy watching so much? Well, I was not aware of any sort of uh, covenant or homeowners association when I signed the deed. So I don't believe that there's anything wrong with um, how I've decided to decorate. Well, I first must warn you about the Homeowners Association. Uh, that's, those are not demons you want to mess with. Mm. I was not informed of any Homeowners Association. Oh, did you, did you read carefully in the contract? What sort of demon do you take me for? Well, not a Homeowners Association demon. I don't think I would have survived that contact. Um, okay, so I, I think I know where we're going here for what we're going to try and resolve. Uh, but I'm going to okay. ask you one thing. Card time? What's that? Mm -hmm. Is it card time? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be card time, uh, I think. Um, yeah, it's going to be card time, uh, but it depends. Uh, like, what I'm going to be pulling a card for depends on uh, what's going on here. So... Um, my question to you, Scott, is, is there a homeowners association? 
No, no, okay. no. There's no such thing. So you are just uh, trying to uh, bluff this guy. Absolutely. Okay. And there is nothing more terrifying than the prospect of a surreal homeowners association. I know. That's why I just wanted to ask, just in case we wanted to make a homeowners association that's run by demons, which I'm going to I'm gonna have to write that down for another time. <clears throat> <laughs> okay, so uh, this, this demon, uh, you know, it seems like he may not have uh, read all of the details entirely uh, or too closely. So... Um, I guess on a scale of one to ten, I'm gonna say that the difficulty for you to get this guy to to believe that there is a demonic homeowners association that will enforce a covenant here is gonna be a three. Sound good? That sounds good. I might argue there should be a, the uh, uh, that I should get one in my venture for the terror of a homeowner's association, but I think three is perfectly reasonable. Okay. I was, I was thinking four, but a demonic homeowner's association sounds terrible. So, uh, all right. So it's four with a venture of one. So I am, I'm going to be flipping over a card and what we have here is a relentless rumor. Uh, so this is a three that you are passing. This seems to work really well thematically. So, um, sure does. <laughs> so I want to, yeah. Since what I'm doing is I'm kind of building on rumors, um, or maybe even starting a rumor that uh, the neighborhood is protected by a group of demons who have uh, you who protect the neighborhood at the potential expense of people's souls or qualia and that you know that means uh, anyone from outside of their network of demons uh, would be uh, in danger if they tried to horn in on the territory of this demon protection scheme so i'll even create a name this is a pact Um, so they, uh, I'll, I'll basically say, so, um, you know, did, did your, did, did you have your contract with one of the members of, uh, of the, uh, the pact, uh, of the, um, thorn? Uh, I was not informed that the pact of thorn was going to be involved with this paperwork. Yeah, well, they, they do. The Pact of Thorn does uh, keep uh, a little undercover. So, you know, they, they may not have made their presence very well known. But I assure you, the people here know if, if we don't pay up, um, they will be coming for us. Uh, so at this point, the demon, you know, makes a couple of gestures and the chains that are, you know, binding the house come clattering down back into the earth and he re- he's going to release you as well. Um, so I think the next time we pick up our development mode stuff, we're going to figure out what you want to do uh, going forward from here. Before we stop, yeah. one quick thing to ask now, as the chains fall away, do they break as they fall away? Um, they don't break as they fall away, but they retract back into the earth. Okay, so there's no, like, piece that I could keep. Well, you have the pieces that you had kept from earlier when you had sliced them apart. Oh, okay. Uh, Not including the one that bit me. Not including the one that bit you. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I may use that later to track him down. Okay, sounds good. Um, also, there to be clear, he releases you, but he does not leave the building. <laughs> uh, so this, this problem is not resolved. It has just changed. It has changed, yes. <laughs> okay, now we will be able to pick up there uh, next time. Cool. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, tell a friend about incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.